welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. Welcome to our daily devotional for May the 24th. So if you recall, our daily devotional is split into two different segments. We've got our verse of the day segment, and we have our through the Bible in one year segment. So our verse for the day segment for today comes from Colossians 4, 2 through 6, which says this. Devotion to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer every one. So Paul here urged the Colossians to commit a significant <coughs> significant amount of time to prayer. So presumably this prayer focused on their spiritual growth, much like the prayer that Paul prayed in Colossians chapter 1 verses 9 to 12 which says this for this reason since the day we heard about you we have not stopped praying for you we continually ask god to fill you with the knowledge of his will with all the wisdom and understanding the spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the lord and please him in every way bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people, in the kingdom of light. So Paul's command here, in Colossians chapter 4 verse uh, 2 to be watchful recalls Jesus' identical command to his disciples during their struggle to stay awake and pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. So you will find it in Matthew 26 verse 4 and Mark 14 verse 38. So the command to be thankful which comes after that comes after the command to be watchful here in Colossians, shows that believers should express sincere thanks to God for their many spiritual blessings they have, for the many spiritual blessings they have already received before imploring Him, that is God, to bless them even more. So the believers' prayers for their own spiritual needs should be accompanied by petitions for Paul and his missionary team as well. So they shouldn't be praying that God will grant good opportunities to the team 
for proclaiming the gospel, which is the amazing mystery that Christ indwells both believing Jews and Gentiles, so that they have the hope of fully exhibiting the glory of God, which comes out of Colossians 1, Colossians chapter 1 verse 27 which says that them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery which is Christ in you the hope of glory so Paul reminds the Colossians that his imprisonment currently restricted his opportunities to proclaim the gospel so what are we talking about there right so it says and pray for us too, and that God may open the door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. That's verse 3. So Paul desires to proclaim the gospel clearly in plain, simple language, rather than a lofty rhetoric that few would understand. That takes us to verse 4. Pray that I should proclaim it clearly as I should. Because the gospel is such a powerful message, it does not require, require human eloquence to be effective. So Paul recognizes the, Paul recognizes that he proclaimed the gospel under a divine mandate. So which we pick up, so, uh, so verse 5 says, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. The reason Paul recognized he proclaimed the gospel under divine mandate was because Christ himself commanded Paul to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So now we come to this last part. So, um, so caught the Colossians are to share Paul's responsibility for, for proclaiming the gospel to others. Thus, Paul urges them to relate to unbelievers wisely. That's verse 5. This entails living a holy life that is pleasing to God and prompts unbelievers to wonder why Christians are so different than others. Believers must seize every opportunity God them to proclaim the gospel to others. So now we come to this last verse, which is verse 6, which says, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer every one. So believers should speak graciously and kindly to unbelievers. This will help make the gospel message more winsome and attractive, much like salt can make food flavorful and appealing. So believers should remember that the goal is to win a soul rather than to win an argument. This will prevent them from being harsh and unnecessarily offensive. So here's what Paul is telling us in this passage. So as followers of Christ, our speech must be pleasant, encouraging, kind, 
and gracious, in other words, worthy of being identified with Christ. We should set an example of godliness and decency for all who hear, and should always speak the truth in love. So this kind of conversation we're talking about here results from the work of God's grace, which is his undeserved favor, love, and spiritual enablement in our hearts. So when we use the phrase, <coughs> when Paul uses the phrase, seasoned and salt, I'm talking about conversation, is conversation that is right for the occasion, wholesome, marked by purity, and free from corruption. So like salt, it should enhance that flavor in a spiritual sense, giving people a thirst and an appetite for God. So now let's talk about graceful speech. So graceful speech, however, does not rule out stern words when necessary, but it is to challenge and oppose or does not rule out stern words necessary to challenge and oppose the enemies of Christ, right? So we should be challenging and opposing the enemies of Christ, but we should be doing so with words that are designed to be winning souls and not winning arguments, right? So when our conversations are full of grace and seasoned with salt, then we will be truly, truly trying to win souls for Christ, and not just trying to win an argument. So today was Bible readings to get us, get you prepared for through the Arthur the to, to be prepared for Arthur the Bible in one year segment arm, Second Samuel. Chapter 4 through chapter 6, <coughs> John 13, cha- uh, John chapter 13, verse 31 through chapter 14, verse 14, Psalm 119, 17 through 32, and Proverbs 15, 31 through 32. So we will now be moving into our second segment of our daily devotional which will be our Through the Bible in One Year segment. So we are on to day 144 of that segment. So just a word of reminder here. If you have missed any of our verse of the day segments or our Through the Bible in One Year segment, you can read them and get caught back up with them by visiting upstatechristian.com So today we're going to be focusing on John John chapter 8 verses 48 through 59 So with that we're going to be finally coming to the end of John chapter 8 If you recall from yesterday we discussed the fact that those who opposed Jesus were the physical descendants of Abraham, but not the spiritual descendants of Abraham. And we also saw that those who, those who opposed Jesus were not 
children of God. Those are two big things to understand. So today as we finish John chapter 8, we will see that Jesus is greater than Abraham. And we will also see why this is so important to us today. So with that being said, we're going to jump right into this section. We're going to pick up in verse 48. And we're going to go through verse 51 to begin with. So here's what it says. Then Jesus answered, Aren't we... Other than the Jews answered him, Aren't we right in the same that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. So what we see here is this rapid change of speakers in verses 48-59 heightens the tension and the drama in this dialogue that has been going on throughout John chapter 8. So the Jews now essentially resorted to name calling, which is the, which is the worst thing that someone debating can do. Because they move from a defensive posture to a more aggressive tone by essentially calling Jesus a demon-possessed Samaritan. In other words, they said you're a demon-possessed foreigner, a demon-possessed half-breed. In other words, you don't come from God, you come from the devil, and you're worse than just coming from the devil. You come from the devil and you're a half-breed also. So Jesus did not answer or address the accusation that he was a Samaritan, but he did deny that he was demon-possessed by appealing to his relationship with God. He then accused the crowd of dishonoring God because they didn't honor God's chosen representative. So what are we talking about there? What exactly does that mean? So the assumption is that the one who the one sent is the same as the one who did the sending or the sender, right? And so therefore the treatment of the emissary or the representative, whichever word you wish to use there, to describe the one who was sent, <coughs> is equal to the treatment of the sender. So if you get where we're going with this, right? So they treated Jesus badly as the emissary, as God's representative on earth. So therefore they were treating God badly. They rejected Jesus. So therefore they were rejecting God. So what we must remember is that obedience to Jesus' word <coughs> is evidence that one that you have eternal life. Now let's pick up again in verse 52, and we can go through verse 53, right? So, which says that this they exclaimed, now that they here are, is the Jews, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? 
died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? So what we see here, so, so what happened is that earlier in the passage, earlier in this chapter, in this passage uh, in John's Gospel, the Jews had identified, uh, had defended their identity by noting their relationship with Abraham. And they pointed to this again, you know, as an attack on Jesus' identity. So they accused Jesus of being demon-possessed because he taught that those who obeyed him would live forever. Right? So they thought about he was demon-possessed because he's saying you'll live forever, that you won't die. But Jesus wasn't talking about physical death. Here he was talking about spiritual death. Big, huge difference. In other words, you can kill the body, but you can't kill the soul within the body. So surely Jesus could not think he was greater than Abraham or the prophets who had died, which was the Jewish leaders very thoughts. He got to understand Jesus is greater than Abraham. Jesus is greater than the prophets. Because Jesus is God. We're going to talk about that in great, great detail at the very end. So hold on to that thought for just a few more moments. So it was their question. It was their question concerning Jesus' identity that that remained one of their main concerns. Because how could Jesus say who? say all these things about himself when in their minds they thought in their minds they got it but in their hearts they didn't get it right so understand that so now we're going to pick up in verse 54 we're going to go through verse 57 it says jesus replied if i glorify myself my glory means nothing my father whom you claim as your god is the one who glorifies me though you do not know him i know him if i said i did not i would be a liar like you but i do know him and obey his word your father abraham rejoiced the thought of seeing my day and saw it and was glad you are not 50 years old you are not yet 50 years old they said to him and you have seen Abraham. You know, I'll stop right there for just a minute. So Jesus responded to this group of people's question concerning his identity by stating that he does not glorify himself, but his father, whom this group of people claimed was their God, glorifies him. So the difference between Jesus and this group of people is that Jesus was obedient, Jesus is obedient to God's word, while this group of people was disobedient to God's word. So Jesus appealed to this person, Abraham, that they were clinging to like a drowning rat, were clinging to a piece of wood, like a drowning man will cling to a piece of wood. That's exactly what they were doing here. They were grasping at straws in an attempt to out 
fruits that we see here at the very end of this one where it says your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day and saw it and was glad. Right. So the reference to Abraham seeing this day may refer to a specific event in Abraham's life or to a promise that God made to him. Either way, this statement should have been enough to silence these supposed quote-unquote religious lingers. Forget it, because here's how this passage ends. So we're going so to repeat verse 57, which says, You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen, yet you have seen Abraham. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. So the hearers of this were outraged, the apparent absurdities that they had heard. So the reference that we see here to Jesus not yet being 50 years old was not a statement of Jesus' exact age, but was them essentially showing the absurdity of Jesus' statement. They're saying, you're such a young man, how can you have possibly seen Abraham, who died thousands of years before you were ever even born, and before you were ever even thought of by your mother and father. There's no possible way you could ever have seen Abraham, because you are way too young. Right. <coughs> so, Jesus' self-identity or his self-understanding was crystal clear because you see his I am statement here was a claim to pre-existence. It was a claim that echoed the words of Exodus of chapter 3, particularly Exodus 3, 5, and 6. You see his opponents understood this and they sought to stone him. To really and truly understand what Jesus was saying to the crowd that was listening to him speak on that day. And what he is saying to those of us who hear his words today. I'm going to look to what Dr. Tony Evans wrote in his Bible study notes, verse 58. Which is the verse that says, Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born... I am, I am, so here's what Dr. Tony Evans wrote about that, that you know, this, this is one of Jesus' most profound claims to deity in the Gospels, he didn't say before Abraham was, I was, but I am, so the former wording could be ambiguous and misunderstood, but not the latter. Not only was he claiming to have existed in Abraham's day, but he was also claiming divine identity. 
when Moses asked God his name because he could tell the Israelites who had sent him to them, God responded, I am who I am. This is what you are going to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Exodus 3.14 Thus Jesus identified himself as the God who had spoken to Moses. So now do you understand the importance of this? So when Jesus said that he existed before Abraham was born, undeniably proclaimed his deity. Not only did Jesus say that he existed before Abraham, he also implied God's holy name, I am, or Yahweh, which you see in Exodus 3.14, to himself. This claim demands a response. And it cannot be ignored. You cannot ignore the fact that a response is required for this claim. As you see, the Jewish leaders tried to stone Jesus because he claimed equality with God. That's how they responded to this demand, to this claim. So now the question becomes, so how have you responded to Jesus, the Son of God? Which is the ultimate question of John's Gospel. And it is one that demands an answer. As you see, now we have reached essentially the heart of John's Gospel. Because now we have seen that Jesus has come out and very, very clearly stated that he is... God, that he and God are equal. He has kind of beat around the bush a little bit up until now, but now he's come right out and he's said it. And the religious leaders are so mad, they're willing to kill him. And so the question now becomes for you, how are you going to respond to this claim that Jesus and God are equal? How are you going to respond to the claim that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is God? And so we will pick up from here tomorrow when we start John chapter 9, which deals, by the way, with the healing of a man born blind. So in order for you to be prepared to do that, here's what you need to read. You need to read Second Samuel chapter 7 and 8. Chapter 7 and 8. You need to read John chapter 14 verses 15 through 31. Psalm 119, 33 through 48. And Proverbs 15, 30.